This is the Books Podcast presented by Tim Hague. The model of how prejudice works is the model that algorithms use. Women did better on IQ testing, so they went in and put in different questions, many of them about sports. It is ambitious of me, well, not to say reckless, to tackle a book about algorithms or maths in general, but algorithms are so deeply embedded in our lives now that it is worth giving them some consideration, and hence Rage Inside the Machine by Robert Elliot Smith. Rob, thank you for talking to us. Uh, I'm glad to be here. So, okay, algorithms are all around us, uh, pervasive through our lives. Should we be worried about them, and why? We should be worried about them. And the reason is is because uh, they promote a simplified view of what people are in a way that most people are unaware of. And uh, I associate that with prejudice, but it's a, it's a deeper idea of prejudice than simply the commonplace prejudice we're used to, although it does have historical relationships to that as well. Okay, so uh, that's the problem. Um, I don't know if you remember, there was an episode of The Big Bang Theory in which uh, Penny uh, says to Sheldon the genius, I'm just a blonde monkey to you, aren't I? So I'm going to start, (laughs) if I may, with a really simple question. The subtitle of the book is The Prejudice of Algorithms and How to Stop the Internet Making Bigots of Us All. So let's start at the beginning. What's an algorithm and uh, where do we see them? Or actually speaking, where do we not see them? Because that's rather the point you're getting uh, yes uh, well algorithms an interesting word it comes from the name of an uh, of an Arab a mathematician whose name I would mispronounce terribly if I said it now uh, and uh, when when the mathematics was first being developed one of the he he had a book that book uh, was read by Fibonacci and Fibonacci took ideas from it and then propagated those ideas around Europe uh, Chaucer actually introduced the word algorithm, um, which was uh, it was Chaucer. Uh, wow. Yes, Chaucer. Yeah, and and it's um, it's that guy's name basically processed first through a Latinate language and then into English, and what it means is a well-specified procedure for doing something, and what it probably means today is a computer program more or less, or at least uh, the template for. Uh, making a computer program. It may not be a particular computer program, but it's it's uh, an algorithm is a procedure that is turned into a program. The words that are perhaps missing from the title of your book are um, artificial intelligence. So uh, let's uh, delve a little into what is the relationship then between algorithms and artificial intelligence, and we'll have a lot more to talk about. Uh, that, that's a super question. Uh, I just uh, gave a talk recently where I was, I was talking about this. I try to stay away from the term artificial intelligence because what it means exactly is variable over time. At one time, uh, pretty much everything that is uh, a computer procedure, an algorithm, at one time probably was called artificial intelligence. And, and basically, as, as things become more commonplace, they lose that moniker, that kind of magical moniker, and uh, become just algorithms. As it becomes uh, more and more obvious that they're not intelligent. Yeah, ind- indeed. I think it's, we call it the moving yardstick. AI people call it the moving yardstick. Uh, and also, I don't like the term artificial intelligence particularly because the word artificial has two meanings. It has the meaning uh, uh, of man-made, and it has the meaning of sham. And I think because of the two meanings, it's very confusing what we mean by artificial intelligence. In fact, at the very end of the book, I I promote a term that's used in a science fiction book I really like. Um, I call it pseudo-intelligence. 
And I think that's actually a better word. Uh, I have my own problems with the word intelligence as well. But, but the thing is, is it, when you introduce pseudo rather than artificial, at least it only has one clear meaning. And I think, in fact, most algorithms are pseudo-intelligence. They're an imitation of human intelligence, but, but a fairly inaccurate one. And that's some of the things that, that they're the, the book's about. Really. Well, essentially, I, I think there are two themes, two main themes in the book, aren't there? Uh, why artificial intelligence is not human intelligence, and also what that means for the way they impact on us. So um, I want to go a bit more into artificial intelligence. I, was, I, I loved the, uh, the background that you gave us, the history. Mm. Um, if you could quickly sketch, and, and in particular, I wanted to f focus on, there was a, uh, you call it a, an AI winter. Yes. There was a time in the sort of 50s and 60s when people thought that they were getting there. Yeah. And then didn't yes and there was an ai winter and and then of course the idea came back and it, it it wasn't just that there was a an explosion of computing power is it Some, something else went on in people's understanding well the, the computing power is, is kind of continually exploding but uh what what really was the mainstream uh technology and ai in the late 60s, early 70s, into the early 80s, was basically what we would call programming now. It was a bunch of if-then rules, more or less. Uh, some of the constructs were slightly different from that, but that's pretty much what it was. Uh, and this fell under the rubric of what was called expert systems, uh, the attempt to basically take human expertise and turn it into programs. Uh, that there was a huge amount of hype, uh, it, it, not as much hype as there is today, not as much popular hype as there is today, but certainly uh, a huge amount of government funding poured into AI. And uh, then people found out it didn't live up to its promise. Uh, the reason it didn't live up to its promise is because it turns out that taking human expertise and encoding it into a set of if-then rules is really, really hard. Uh, experts don't really know how they do what they do, and they do it in some very complicated cognitive ways that that construct doesn't fit. Uh, it was uneconomic. Uh, they found out that interviewing experts to try to figure out how they did things and turn that into computer programs was really, really expensive. And so uh, first the UK government, then the US government pulled the plug. Uh, there was a, a, uh, a report to Parliament about the failures of AI uh, by James Lighthill that killed AI research here. And then a similar report from ARPA at that time in the States and lots of funding was pulled and effectively the AI winner came down. And that lasted for a few years until the internet came along and changed everything. Um, and then it's big data that makes the that's difference. That's right. That's right. We moved from the idea of, um, and I make a big thing about this in the book, is we moved from the idea of the expert being the place that you got knowledge and turned it into a computer program to the crowd being the place you got knowledge and turned it into a computer program. So there's a huge shift. The nice thing about the crowd is the economic problem goes away because people largely... Uh, either through advertising or through a subscription, pay to have their data mined. And so then you get this huge mine of data that you can then use to basically turn into uh, algorithmic decision-making. Uh, slightly different constructs. They're more statistical than rules-based. But as one of the things I say in the book is that there's uh, only a hair's breadth difference between those if you look at them the right way. What's interesting then, and, and, and something you go into in, 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 in some detail in the book, is what is the difference between the way uh, 
computers um, come to their conclusions and the way uh, people do. Yes. Uh, I mean, we, we all... <clears throat> science fiction's got this this uh, this sort of fantasy that it's all going to be um, HAL from 2001 and it's going to be a human mind generated by just enormous computing power doing things that a human mind does. Uh, you're very clear that that's, that's not what computers do. And um, and and you you give us quite a lot of reasons for supposing that and for 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 uh, concluding that. Sure. Um, and so if, if we can look at that. Yeah, we you know we have conceptions of the way human thinking goes on. There there was the the kind of uh, executing a set of procedures kind of expert systems view, and uh, then there's the view that uh, there's basically a bunch of synapses in your brain, and those synapses are like uh, tiny little computational units, and they're uh, aggregate behavior basically results in you doing some sort of uh, secret and hidden computation that is actually your thinking. Uh, I think that that is a rather narrow view of what goes on inside your body when you think because uh, thinking is a fairly integrated process. Your your gut operates as an almost entirely separate brain but talks to your, your, your brain in your head. Uh, your endocrine and immune systems are involved. Uh, and moreover, um, society is involved. Usually thinking takes place in a human social context. Uh, we get social signals from which we build uh, models of, of the things around us, narrative models, and from those we make decisions. So human thinking is integrated within the body, integrated within the society the body exists in. So uh, effectively, our brain-centric and synaptic-centric model of thinking is, uh, you know, pretty narrow and not really very accurate. And only a very rough simulation of it is actually in what we call AI algorithms today. Uh, people don't realize that we make these metaphors of, say, what people call neural networks or deep learning networks. Uh, the amount that they have in common with, with the way the brain actually operates or with thinking actually operating, which is more than the brain, is really quite slight. Well, yeah, you, you offer us uh, various ways of looking at it as well. There's a, a wonderful term that, you, that I was unfamiliar with brittleness yes um explain brittleness to us because uh, that i think that gets that gave me an insight into yeah br brittleness uh is is one of the failure modes of expert systems type type ai but actually applies across the whole spectrum of algorithms what it amounts to is you design an algorithm for a particular purpose you kind of think this algorithm is going to do these things uh and then you get the one case the corner case that isn't exactly what you thought of uh, I think the one of the metaphors I use in the in the book is in diagnosing uh, blood diseases. You design a, a program for design diagnose blood diseases, but you overlook the idea of poisons. Uh, they're not really a disease per se, or there may be um, other kinds of illnesses that might involve the blood, but not necessarily be a blood illness. And when you get the, the interesting thing about brittleness is this is. In a computer program, when you get the one corner case, when you get the thing that doesn't fit, you usually have what we call an ungraceful failure. It gives you back no response. I don't know what to do here. Or it gives back a response that's wildly wrong because the frame and that the you, you give us examples. Yes, exactly. And, and and the thing is, is human thinking isn't like that. When we get an example that's outside our uh, normal experience, we we adaptively bring in all sorts of other things, uh, both socially and within our own minds. And that allows us to gracefully fail. Experts, one of their characteristics is uh, is a graceful way of dealing with uh, an unforeseen circumstance. And the unforeseen circumstance is really the, the death knell of most algorithms, really. That there's always a boundary that they hit. 
human beings are very flexible and adaptive and and uh, we don't really have that capability in algorithms yet and it's unclear whether we ever will one one again one of the differences is that we know that uh, the the operation of the of the human mind and of all the other systems um results in what they call emergence we 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 wind up with things like consciousness and creativity and right. uh, imagination right. and and these are these are things that you can't you can't see in if you look at the system yeah. there's no reason within That's the right. system for that you, you you make it clear as well though that there is emergence from algorithmic system. undoubtedly um and but but they're different and, and that actually is one of the things that i was interested in in finding well, well emergence is a characteristic of what what we call what i call capital c complex systems where where when scientists talk about complex systems they're talking about a particular kind of area of science and i, I kind of call it the boundary of science it's it's where uh, a complex system is something where predictability uh is really definitely impossible and human beings are, are complex systems some algorithms are complex systems, but one of the characteristics of complex systems is that they can't be torn into pieces very effectively. You can't like tear them apart and figure out uh, why do they do these complex behaviors they have by looking at the parts. You have to put the parts together and then you have an emergent behavior, a behavior that is greater than the sum of the parts. So I guess my argument would be this, is that humans, uh, their behaviors are greater than the sums of their parts. Uh, algorithms, have emergent behaviors undoubtedly. I mean, it's, it's they, they do things we don't expect, and we mm -hmm. see this all the time. That's an emergent behavior. But are those emergent behaviors the same as our emergent behaviors? Demonstrably not, because of that characteristic of not being able to break apart the complex system. However, uh, the, then the argument would be, can we make them of some equivalent quality or specialness, you know, where we uh, obtain some of those special characteristics would be things like uh, consciousness or sentience. Um, I personally think that those are all um, words that are substitutes for what we really mean is humanity, right? Can we make an algorithm have humanity? And that's that's the integrated term. And I think that um, we're pretty far from that. Uh, if it's possible, it might be possible um, through almost duplication of the way we operate as an integrated system. And then you kind of... It, it's a reduction ad absurdum. In your of. book, you're more skeptical even than this. About, yeah. You, know, you say things like, uh, um, it's unclear if the possibility of replicating human intelligence even exists. Yes. And and it, it is unclear. And, and it may be in principle that it's not possible um, for that to happen. But of course, that that doesn't that doesn't take away the the, uh, the the apocalyptic future in which a different kind of intelligence. Well, um, uh, you know, uh, what concerns me most is this: is that um, the artificial intelligence we have, uh, based upon uh, both rule-based breakdowns of the way people think and uh, based on the idea of statistical reasoning from big data. Both of those descend from fairly simplifying theories of human behavior that have been around since really the advent of modern science. And, uh, you know, they're useful theories. The idea of looking at simple models of humans is useful. What is it you say about models? Uh, all models are wrong. Some models are useful. Uh, and it's my favorite quote. It, it, it's, it's, it's a theme. It, it's, it's a, a mantra. Uh, uh, yeah, and, and it's, it's from uh, uh, George Box, and it's, it's, a, it's a great quote. And, and the thing is, is that... Um, these these models we have uh, from back in the old days, uh, models where we look at things like um, 
IQ test, we look at things like statistical measures over You've groups. You've got to do the IQ test, the 1937 adjustment. Uh, yeah, well, the 1937 adjustment is amazing, is, is effectively uh, women did better on IQ test initially. And everybody and, knew that men were smarter than women yes, back then. So they went in and put in different questions, uh, many of them about sports. <laughs> yeah, hilarious. And then men did better than women. Uh, that's right. And that, it, was, it was a scientific measurement. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, the idea of these as being unbiased measures is completely ridiculous. That's, that's again, uh, a big theme of your book all our biases are built into our algorithms we think that they're dispassionate right but they're not they're not and 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 effectively our qu quantitative thinking about human beings uh one of the reasons i say algorithms are prejudices is what does it mean to prejudge what it means to prejudge is to first simplify and then to generalize and in fact if you're a person like me who's worked in ai a lot you realize that when you design an ai algorithm what you do is you first simplify and then you try to get the algorithm to generalize so the model of what how prejudice works is the model that algorithms use and the the, the key thing to realize is our simplifying theories of humanity have existed for a long time many of them are tied to traditional prejudice one of the most simplifying things you can do is basically look at the color of a person's skin. And that's a simple feature. Uh, and uh, algorithms are based on simple features. And this is one of the reasons you see things that appear to be racist in algorithms, because they're trying to generalize. Their, their, their mission in life is to generalize from, uh, from complex data to simple conclusions. Well, one of the ways to do that is to use simplifying features. Simplifying features are right at the core of prejudice. I'm going to quote back at you or something else in, in the book. You, you say, because uh, algorithms depend on probabilities in order to uh, make their judgments. Modern algorithms do, yeah. Probabilities, you say, uh, only apply to truth uncertainty and not semantic or ontological uncertainty. That's right. And, and, and those are the things that people are very good at. That's exactly with. right. And, and this, this uh, distinction of truth, semantic and ontological uncertainty is really important. Uh, one of the things about uncertainty uh, is uncertainty exists within us, not in the world. It's, it's unclear whether uh, how, the, how reality operates in terms of whether there's, there's even deep randomness is not clear. But one thing that's sure is we're not clear about what's going on in the world. And that's uncertainty. And, and then, the, then you st have to look at the nature, the ontological nature of uncertainty. And I think you know, there's uncertainty of truth, which is you make a well-founded proposition uh, the, the one that I use in the book is, is a woman pregnant or is she not? It's a well-founded proposition for the most part. There are some <laughs> weird boundary cases, but for the most part, it's a well-established. Well and then it's either true or not false, and you can take a pregnancy test and basically make it into a model of probabilities. That works. Um, ontological, uh, semantic uncertainty is when you don't know what a symbol means. And the example I use in the book is if you've got one of those little home pregnancy tests and uh, the plus the minus comes up and you can't remember if plus is pregnant or minus is pregnant and you can't find the instructions. Uh, that is an uncertainty in our minds. And then you can start saying about reasoning over groups of people. But then, you know, as I say in the book, uh, if you're a person our age and you're looking at the pregnancy test, you might want one kind of result. Your kid in college, you might want a very different kind of result. So your biases may be very different in seeing what positive and negative are. And ontological uncertainty is, of course, when you have uh, something turn up in, in the pregnancy test that you didn't expect. And then you've got to basically use some sort <laughs> you of You have reasoning. a little death head. Uh, death death head is the joke I use, <laughs> yeah, in the book. And, and you know, uh, what does that mean? Then your whole world kind Twins. of... Your world... <laughs> funny. Your whole world kind of falls apart. And you start having to do real human reasoning about what might be going on. And real human reasoning 
is about those corner cases that are hard to solve, ontological uncertainties. And again, with uncertainty, what you what you suggest is that um, uh, the, the human mind deals with these kinds of uncertainties by constructing a narrative. Yeah. And that is something that the machine simply can't do. Uh, well, narratives are interesting. Uh, narratives are, uh, as I said, you know, we're an integrated self in our body and in our culture. Narratives... Um, are, are constructed uh, in those embeddings. For instance, uh, in, in a financial setting, uh, the narrative we have about what's going on, going on in the economic future is, is based not only on our own reasoning about what's around us, but about what society is telling us. Economics is a really good example of the social narrative. And, um, you know, the way of coping with uncertainty that human beings use is they effectively construct a story and then they invest themselves emotionally to basically say, I believe this story, so I'm going to act. If you didn't invest yourself emotionally, uh, because the world is so uncertain, you'd never be able to act. Uh, that's that's the theory that a friend of mine actually constructed about about narratives. And and I think that if you think about the way you think about the world, no one would ever get married if they didn't build a narrative in their head about the future. Because if they looked at statistics, you know, it would it would be a, a loss making adventure because because so, so many people wouldn't have divorced. children. Either. Yeah, exactly. You wouldn't have children. <laughs> in fact, all the all the major decisions in life, if you didn't build a narrative about them, and that narrative is not built on probabilistic reasoning, because if it were, uh, no one would ever. People would be paralyzed by in, in, in action. Economics is a, a beautiful place for uh, algorithms and 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 what's wrong with them, isn't it? Because they tend to depend on this notion of an of an economic man yes. who uh, maximizes his utility exactly. and uh, understands the market and has perfect knowledge of things, which is exactly not a description of the way people behave. Yes, and I, I make this point about the reduction of values to value. One of the things in economics is the idea of, of goods being interchangeable with one another. So everything ultimately comes down to what's it worth in dollars and cents or pounds and pence. And, um, and the thing is, is that human values are actually much more complex than that. You know, you, you have uh, in, uh, irreconcilable goods, things that you can't trade for one another, like uh, the value of, of a, a good family experience versus uh, the value of adventure. You know, those, those two things are, 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 you can't reduce them down to dollars and cents and make a decision. So economics tries to reduce everything to a single value. And in many ways, algorithms, because they're numeric in character, are, are performing similar sorts of operations. And, and one of the things I'm concerned about is, is you know, most of the algorithms inter that interact with us in our lives largely service economic goals. And therefore, this reduction of things down to what's it going to what's going to yield maximum payoff for the person who constructed the algorithm or the corporation that construct the algorithm is um, is 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 their main drive. You, know? you 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 go exactly where I was going to go because there is a, a strong case for everybody understanding what algorithms are doing much more deeply because they have these impacts and because they sure. they build in all these biases and, and and affect us so much. And yet people have a, a very very primitive sure. grasp. Me me for a kid. Sure sure. I, I I and I that's one of the missions of the book is I. I, I try to basically go in in the book and basically say, look, first of all, what algorithms do at a, at a base level is actually terribly simple and terribly simplifying. On the other hand, they've gotten so big and fast that they're incomprehensible. These two things together are a bad thing, right? So we have something that at its base is very simplifying, but in its implications are, you know, intractable. We can't get our heads around it. 
it's very important that people understand that when when uh, the you know when they get an answer from an algorithm, that answer is based on some pretty deeply simplifying things. It's not like a human answer where you might have the idea of of consideration and deliberation and, and empathy and things like that. Those those things don't exist there. And uh, you know the most obvious example probably being your news feed that you get uh, from from a social media perspective. It is using some very, very base characteristics of you to decide what you want to hear. And because of that, it can be, A, it can be very um, narrow and, and simply feed you what you already believe. B, it can probably be more easily manipulated uh, than, than, uh, than the kind of news you'd get from someone like yourself, a journalist. You know, uh, I really, the, some people ask me, what do I do about my newsfeed? What, what I basically say is this, is click through, see who wrote it, look the person up, get to know the writer, uh, follow writers, follow people, establish a relationship such that you can with the generator of the content, not with the algorithm that's just serving you headlines and, and news. Because, if, you know, the thing is, is that the perspective of someone like yourself is is uh, invaluably human. Uh, the the perspective of your news feed is inval is is uh, value oriented algorithm based. So, this is a book with a mission, really. Yeah. Um, um, there is a certain amount of maths in it. Yeah. A um, bit. Um, <laughs> on one page, you say uh, th this may look like a complicated equation, but on a second look, you'll see it's really very straightforward. And I thought, uh, <laughs> I'm just a blonde monkey to you. <laughs> but who is it for? Who what? Who do you want to read? This? I want. Uh, well, it's for a broad audience. Anyone who's concerned about the changes we're seeing in the world of algorithmic content delivery, algorithmic uh, decisions about things like social justice. Uh, you know, the Guardian newspaper in the UK is, is, is riddled with articles about algorithms and their effect on society. Uh, the people who read those articles, this book is for them. And I think it's a perspective that you don't get from many other places because of my experience in AI. Uh, and because you don't, you usually either get people who don't know a lot of algorithms criticizing them or people who know a lot of algorithms saying they're great. You get very few of people who, who basically look, turn a critical eye on algorithms in a way that I hope is relatable to everybody. Well, I learned a lot and um, I, I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much, Rob. Uh, thank you. It's been great talking to you. Rage Inside the Machine by Robert Elliott Smith is published by Bloomsbury at 20 pounds. That was the Books Podcast presented by Tim Haig. The Books Podcast is a Green Shoot production. More details can be found at www.green-shoot.com and Tim can be reached on tim at green-shoot.com. <laughs>